welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 336 and my conversation with percussionist, solo and chamber music performer, and composer, Britton Renee Collins. Marching Mizzou is still in the midst of NCAA basketball for both the men's and women's basketball teams. Men are in the NCAA tournament, while women are in the women's NIT tournament, and are gearing up for the conclusion of Marching Mizzou leadership team interviews later this week, and more. Stay tuned for more information. But right now, let's get to our conversation with Britton Renee Collins. Britton Renee, or Brit, as she communicated as her nickname, and I met last year at PASIC through previous podcast guest Jillian Baxter. Jillian was on podcast again this past fall to talk about her 2022 PASIC session on the experiences of black women percussionists, and Britt was one of the panelists on that session. It was a fantastic presentation that I've discussed before on the show and will discuss in further detail in this interview. It was also super cool that when I was introduced to Britt by Jillian, she both knew of this podcast, is a fan, and was totally up for being on it. And now here we are. Britt has kept up a very active career for herself in a very short amount of time. She's active with the percussion group The Excelsis Quartet, which includes previous podcast guest Marcelina Suhoska, along with the vision duo with violinist Ariel Horowitz. As a current master's student at the University of Michigan, she's already earned a number of accolades, including a number of endorsements and continues on with a very active solo performing schedule as well. We get to all of that and more in this interview, so let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on February 21st, 2023, and it begins right now. All right, so Britt, tell me what your percussion responsibilities all the percussion items you're doing at this point right now? Ooh, well, a fair amount of percussion for sure. Um, I play with Excelsis Percussion Quartet. Uh, we're based in New York City. I also play in a percussion and violin duo called Vision Duo with an awesome violinist named Ariel Horowitz. And I do a lot of solo touring um, that consists of a lot of solo recitals and concerto performances. So it's a fair amount of percussion. I'm also finishing up my master's at the University of Michigan. Um, so there's just constantly percussion happening in my life, whether I'm playing or observing it from my colleagues. Um, so that is what I'm up to right now. Well, let's start with the uh, percussion quartet. So when did, did this all form and what was kind of the reasoning, if there is one, for this particular group of people? Yeah. So Excelsis has been around for a while, for like the past decade. And after Clara decided to leave the group, they were sort of searching for replacements. And this all happened during the pandemic. So it was very much a like Instagram DM, like, hey, Britt, we found you online. We think you're cool. Would you be interested in possibly joining this quartet? 
And so I was like, um, first of all, of course, because I follow everybody else in the quartet and I just really love the message behind uh, what Excelsis does, promoting works by women composers and empowering women percussionists. And so I was definitely on board. Um, and interestingly enough, I was in New York around the same time as everybody else. And so it was perfect for us to just meet. We had a little photo shoot together for PR. And we really had that time to see if we gelled together before making this official announcement. And it's exciting because this year we um, signed with Ariel Artists, our management. And so there are a lot of new opportunities coming up for Excelsis. And we're going through a bit of rebranding right now and incorporating more popular music into our program offerings because I think there are a lot of awesome women artists out there making great music and we're working on a lot of covers and arrangements so it's it's really exciting and, and it's a great chance for us all to just experiment together uh, we all get along quite well so it's really just like hanging out with your friends and making music which I mean we all need we all have our own very different schedules where you know, Marcelina and Aya are working in orchestras and Mariana is working on Broadway and then I'm doing my stuff. So it's nice to just come together at the end of the day and make music for fun. I think sometimes we think of music like, oh, the best music comes out of, you know, trauma or something like that or the best art. I mean, we're like, yeah, Van Gogh cut his ear off and that's why he's so great, right? But I'm like, no, we can have great art that comes out of joy. And so I think we're really focusing on that aspect of making music together. Well, Van Gogh cut his ear off, and I believe he didn't make any money during his, his actual <laughs> lifetime. So it was kind of a, was that really necessary? I don't know. It's <laughs> <laughs> Like, was it worth it? <laughs> I know, right. Exactly. <laughs> um, well, I, I'm curious when you said that you kind of figured out if you could all gel together, was there like a test? I mean, what did they, how did they figure out that you, you were going to, this was all going to work with you? Basically we just met up and we literally just hung out for a day. Okay. <laughs> like we, we had drinks together and we just like ate food and we hung out. I think we were in Brooklyn. And so that was a lot of fun. And in terms of playing together, that's something that's developed more recently. Um, we sort of went to New Haven over the summer and just like made music together, recorded a few projects. And so really the test was just, can we hang out? Does it feel natural? And it did. <laughs> like there was, there was no Q&A or, you know, you didn't have to do push-ups or anything or something like that? or No, no push-ups. Okay. <laughs> With that group, is there a home base since you're all spread out? It's actually quite interesting. Um, back in the early days of Excelsis, everybody was more, um, you know, within a distance to each other in the New York and Connecticut area. But now we're all so spread out. So Excelsis 
it's really um, a work in progress. You know, we have to find times where we can all play together. And we're thinking about expanding out into more of a collective where we can have um, different women percussionists come if someone's unavailable for performances. And I think that way we're still focusing on community and empowering women percussionists um, while working with everybody's sort of hectic schedules. So that's definitely the next step uh, for the group. It's a different kind of idea in I compare it to let's say like a so percussion or third coast because that's their job like their job is that you're mm-hmm. all you all have other jobs <laughs> and you do this yes it's quite funny um i was actually talking to uh, my teacher at umich doug perkins mm-hmm. about excelsis and he's like why are you guys still doing this like you all have jobs <laughs> and i'm like yeah that's true but there's just something about it where we can't give it up you know right yeah because what i wasn't he in one of the earliest iterations of so i think exactly yeah well (laughs) what kind of the unspoken part of that though is well you know how many uh all women chamber percussion groups there are two Right. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, it's like we have a different mission. I know that you're you're the kind of the newest member of that kind of going forward, but how how do obviously it was intentional for this to be group of uh, a group of women percussion group of percussionists who are women playing music written by women. Do I have a question <laughs> on that? <laughs> What you sense talking to the others was like why it is so important that this group exists, even if you're this is not what you would all do full time. Yes, I think what's interesting about Excelsis in particular is that we're sort of like the Spice Girls, you know, we're all very different. And so we all, we bring something unique to the table, whether that's from orchestral training, contemporary training, like a drum set specialization. It's interesting to see what ideas we can come up with and find common ground. And I think because there are so few percussion quartets that are made up of all women, we do have this duty to, you know, present works by women and non-male identifying composers. And so that's one of our biggest priorities. But we also, you know, all are classically trained. We love repertoire that is more common that, you know, you'll find from the third coast from the so percussions. And we do that too. It's about uniting uh, both sides you know it doesn't just have to be women percussionists the mission is you know uniting the percussion community whether it's women percussionists male percussionists non-binary percussionists it's about creating a space where everybody can you know relate and enjoy the repertoire that we're playing all true and also to show that you know, the the next generation sees that this is a viable 
they see they see themselves in you all. That's not just all the white dudes who seem to be doing this. Yes, exactly. Uh, you know, representation really does matter, especially in a field that is often considered male dominated, right? I mean, if I could see this sort of thing growing up, I know I would have struggled a lot less in one, finding my voice and, and two, feeling like I belong in this percussion community. Because when you don't see yourself represented, you begin to question everything. I mean, I remember when I first started my undergrad at the University of Toronto, I had such a difficult time feeling like I deserve to be there. It's like, did I really earn this? I'm the only black percussionist here. Like, am I really supposed to be here? And I think seeing that representation allows you to, you know, have role models to look up to, right? And to be able to say, yes, I do deserve to be here. Um, I can make it in this industry. You know, it's not just luck that has me here, but it's hard work and talent, et cetera. Absolutely. It's like, I, I, there's, there's somewhere I want to, I want to go with this. And I think I want to, I want to hear more about the other things you're doing and then we're going to backtrack in a sec. Right. So uh, talk to me about, I know that cause you had been, you've been posting that you, didn't you just finish a tour with your duo? I did. Um, I was recently um, on a sort of month long tour, both with my duo and some solo work as well. And so it's been interesting to be on the road for that duration of time. So consistently, I learned a lot about myself during that time. I was like, oh, maybe I don't like being alone all the time. Maybe I do like traveling with other people. You know, maybe it's more fun to go to a coffee shop with a friend than it is to go alone. And other things like, oh, maybe I should bring a bigger suitcase. Oh, laundry is a thing. How do I do laundry when I'm not in my apartment? <laughs> and then I recently became a vegan back in January. So I'm like struggling to find vegan options on the road. And, you know, it's very tempting to just eat fast food because of the convenience. But then I'm like, oh, I have to actually prioritize my health and still be an adult while I'm doing this. So, I mean, you learn a whole lot about yourself when you're traveling for work and when you you don't have a routine, right? I think that's the biggest hurdle is finding a way to keep a healthy lifestyle while not having that routine that you get when you work from home or when you get to spend a consistent duration of time at home. And I think it's because I am so privileged. I can cook at my apartment. I can do my laundry. I can have time for, you know, my brain and my mental health. Whereas on the road, you're living by somebody else's schedule. You have to sort of show up and be the best version of yourself, even if maybe that's not exactly how you're feeling all the time. And so this has been um, a real test for me as a performer. As you know, at the beginning of my tour is still during the pandemic. So you know, I wasn't getting too much of a busy schedule, but now with 
you know, the performing arts scene becoming more active, I am learning just so much about myself and my notes app on my phone is kind of wild. It's just a bunch of next time bring laundry pads. Next time, like maybe go grocery shopping (laughs) and, you know, all these things I'm reminding myself so that I can be prepared, uh, better prepared in the future. As part of it also, bring performance clothes that can be washed (laughs) and not dry cleaned. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm like, okay, maybe I should bring more practical clothing. Maybe I should bring like uh, more practical shoes and just the little things that you don't really think about. I'm like, ah, I wish somebody had told me before I had to, you know, come here and then be like, oh, I need a target. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Well, the the good news is that it sounds like next time you're good. You you got it. You now, you now know. Yeah, it's all a work in progress, right? I think that's something that's so interesting about performing, you know, especially going to school and specializing in music performance. You know, it's preparing you in a very specific way in terms of once you're on the stage and playing the music, but then it's not really preparing you for everything surrounding that, just the logistic whirlwind of performing and traveling and touring and so I feel like now that I've experienced this I can really you know prepare my students for that path if if they so choose it and that's really something interesting that you don't learn about in school and I think that's why it's so interesting whenever we think about music performance and professional musicians, you don't have to go to school to, you know, be a performing artist because, I mean, the stuff that we're learning in school is not really preparing us anyway, <laughs> in my opinion. I could say more about that, but I'll just, I, I, I'll, I'll stick with your dismount on that, on that final point. Right. Uh, I was going to say the other thing that you probably realized is that particularly if you're a vegan that your traveling means that you you have to do a ton of research to find the vegan places before you go. It's so funny because oftentimes I'll have a gig in like middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. And I'm (laughs) like, where do I find vegan options? I guess I'm just going to be eating a salad or I guess I'm just going to pack some tofu and some kimchi. It is this interesting thing where you have to do research, not only because of my dietary restrictions, but also because like, I'm a black female, I can't just go traveling in random places in the middle of nowhere and the US and, you know, always feel safe. So I do have to do my research and be aware of the situation that I'm putting myself in to perform. So that's very, very interesting and real. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I have to, so I have to, I, I will, we will come back to that exact point. I just want to follow up with the, the duo is when and where did you all form? So it's actually a funny story about my duo. Um, we were sort of match made by our manager. Uh, we both joined the Concert Artist Guild roster back in 2020 after winning the competition. So we were both on the roster as soloists, 
And our manager, he was trying to pitch us both to the same presenter for uh, solo shows. And the presenter was like, solo violin, like we've seen it. We have a lot of solo violinists this this uh, season. And then they were like, solo percussion, that's just weird. And then our manager was like, uh, what if they played together? And they were like, yeah, we would love that. Do they have a program? And then he's like, yeah. And we totally didn't have a program. We've <laughs> never met each other before. And so he calls us and he's like, can you have a program for us in like 30 minutes? And we're like, yeah. And so we come up with this whole program. We end up getting the, the gig. We go and do this show. It was supposed to be a one-time thing, but we just really sort of gelled together and had such a great time that we decided to keep doing it. And fast forward to now, uh, we signed as both a duo act and a soloist on the roster. So, uh, yeah, we had never met before. And the first time we met was to rehearse and learn this program that we come up with in 30 minutes. So that was so funny and unexpected that we would start this duo together and have such success with it in such a short period of time performed all over the country together um, for some really awesome presenters and we've met a lot of great people in the process and now we're really working on commissioning because of course aside from Marimalin there's not a lot of commission re commissioned repertoire out there for marimba and violin or percussion and violin so we're really looking at commissioning. We also are both writing for our duo awesome. and arranging uh, like some good, good old fashioned Piazzolla history of tango nice. uh, and that sort of thing. So that's, that's sort of where we are in the stage of our duo now. We've only been together for about two years. And really this year, we're branching out and trying new things. We have this all electroacoustic program that we're working on that we call Electrovision. And a lot of that program is our own compositions. And that's been really fun because we both get um, to really explore our voice as composers. Uh, neither of us received, you know, traditional training in composition. And I think because of that, it's often difficult for us to consider ourselves composers. But over the past year, we've been able to say, hey, this isn't just a hobby. Like we are composers. We are writing music. We're performing it for our job. Like, isn't that the definition of being a composer? So that has been a really awesome experience just writing for this very specific sound world and seeing how we can expand that sound. And we've gotten some great audience feedback and I think it's really working. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes in the future. In my head, when you said uh, they needed a program of 30 minutes, you're like, you're like looking up Marimelin and just cutting out like who's <laughs> where this is from and shipping this this will work <laughs> exactly i mean one of our earliest programs was just like marimelin commissions and then we're like okay maybe we should like try to be more original <laughs> sure yeah yeah 
<laughs> well, did, have you all done um, Legal Highs, David P. Jones? We have not yet. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. That's another. That's one of the Marimelon ones. That's kind of got a little bit more of a of a jazz. Well, some of it does, but it's 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 pretty fun. It's definitely uh, it's definitely a work. It's like decently hard enough for the for the marimbist. It's it's pretty athletic for the for the violinist. So, but totally playable and and really good. So, yeah, we'll have to check that out for some yeah. future program. Yeah, the part of what I was what I was I, I'd been wanting really wanting to talk to you about among many other things was your appearance and PASIC this year with on the panel. So I went to that and it was, it was wonderful. Um, and I met you sometime soon after that. I want to, I have something I want to, I want to talk to you about that was said in there that really kind of struck me, but I want to know more about you being involved in this and how you, what, how you got connected for this particular uh, presentation. The first time that I heard about this um, panel was actually through an email from Jillian Baxter. I was meant to perform a concerto with the Albany Symphony um, later last year that actually got postponed because of weather. And so Jillian was sort of reaching out like, hey, excited that you're going to be coming here. And also, you know, there's this idea for a panel discussion at PASIC about Black women percussionists. We would love to have you come and speak about your experience in this panel. And I was, of course, interested to have this conversation in, you know, a convention like PASIC that, you know, obviously draws a lot of attention and to really bring this discussion to more of a international stage, right? So, um, I was really interested in being in part of the panel and actually having the discussion, it felt kind of surreal because I would have never imagined a discussion like that taking place at PASIC before as somebody that, you know, has attended uh, when I was younger and, you know, I would see a lot of the same thing year after year, the same sort of people and to actually have an opportunity to tell my story and to really talk about this experience that Black women percussionists have, um, especially in North America, was really, I think, interesting um, for me as a panelist as well, because, you know, we, we all share identity, but, you know, we're all very different. And so I could learn a lot from Jillian and the other panelists as well listen you're both amazing and the thing that i i wrote a number of things down um i i I also my notes app is kind of ridiculous like like yours is and i i'm frequently taking notes at these things but the thing that i I have so i'm going to kind of just share something that i that was that was said that i thought hadn't hit me until you all had said it and the first one was isolation i think you both talked about it and you were hinting at this with uh, what you talked about of being at Toronto. And if you don't, could you do you mind like talking a little bit more about that portion of your career? It's really interesting because I think within the percussive arts 
field, uh, you know, you have often discussions about gender, and then you have discussions about race, but we don't often talk about, you know, intersectionality, you know, Black women. And so it's a very isolating topic when you are a Black woman to hear discussions about gender, to hear discussions about race, but not to hear that specific discussion about, you know, this intersectional identity that you have. And it was the same sort of situation in Toronto for me where, you know, there were other uh, women in the percussion studio and we could relate on a certain level, but I was the only black woman. So I still felt isolated. Once you find your community, find your people and you're able to have these discussions, it makes it feel a lot less isolating. And really when I'm talking about isolation, that's this loneliness that I often feel when I walk into a classroom and I'm the only person that looks like me, you know? And it's difficult because there's so much that's unsaid. You know, you can't have discussions with your classmates about certain things that you feel or a certain reaction that you have to a topic, which, you know, I think about music theory or music history class and how there's a lot of composers that are discussed and, you know, there aren't a lot of discussions about Black composers or women composers or Black women composers. And to not have those peers to be able to talk about this with, it can make it feel isolating when you're just sitting in a classroom and you feel a certain way, but you can't express it. And I think what was beautiful about this panel at PASIC in particular is that it gave us an opportunity to express these feelings that we have that for so long, we have to stay silent because there's often nobody that can relate to what we're going through. For me, that was that was one of the highlights of um, the convention for me, really. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, me as well. I I feel it's weird. I feel like it's usually the diversity panels where that are like the only thing that make people even slightly uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Like that's it. Like that's part, almost part of the reason I want to, I, that I, I really want to support these is because there's so many, everything is just like, like oh standing ovation for every single thing and it's like exactly. how like we, we like try to just make you just a little bit just think just oh just a little bit like oh we can think right? <laughs> <laughs> i didn't come here for that brit <laughs> so yeah so the the isolation and the um the loneliness the, that was that was one part and the other thing was I don't know that you said this, but superwoman complex. This superwoman complex that we often talk about is really building this outer armor, this shell to really honestly exist in the community because there are times where we feel so uncomfortable, but we can't show it or else, you know, we get 
painted as the angry black woman or, you know, somebody that is difficult to work with. And so having this superwoman complex is honestly a way to cope with, again, that loneliness, that isolated feeling, the feelings that we can't express. So we have to show strength to show that, you know, we can be a part of this community because we, you know, won't complain. We won't, you know, express that we feel uncomfortable. And really, I have grown to reject that sort of mentality just because it can be exhausting to always be, you know, putting up a front, essentially. I like to just be more authentic. And if I'm uncomfortable in a situation, I'll express that, you know, if somebody says something that I have an issue with, they will hear about it. I'm less interested in pretending that I'm a super woman because I'm not, I'm just a human, you know, nobody has these super human abilities. And I think once we can accept that, we are allowing ourselves to feel comfortable rather than feeling uncomfortable at the expense of somebody else's comfort. And I think it's also a form of self-love to allow yourself to do that. Um, And that's just something that I've been really working on. The more that I interact with industry professionals, like over the past two and a half years, I would say, And it's not always easy because sometimes it can feel like, oh, you're hurting connections that maybe could have gone somewhere great in the future. But at the end of the day, you will know the people that you want to work with, the people that support you for who you are. And I'm more interested in those sort of collaborations than trying to, you know, earn a seat at a table where, you know, somebody doesn't really want me there in the first place. You know, if I have to be somebody that I'm not, that means I'm not being accepted. That means that I should move on and, you know, strive to work in a space where I am accepted. Yeah, definitely. All of what you said, it's interesting because what you haven't said as part of that is all of the both mental gymnastics to think about all that as just your regular day-to-day interactions and how much stress that puts on you. And that has nothing to do with your playing or your teaching or your composed, like has nothing to do with, it's just, that's just a Tuesday. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's really interesting though, because I was sort of, Hinting at this really complex mental gymnastics thing that happens um, often with these interactions when I was talking about, you know, this exhaustion that I could feel. And it, it is because of that, you know, it's so exhausting to constantly be hyper analyzing every interaction and to be, you know, almost in a defensive state always like just prepared to defend yourself because oftentimes I have to 
And that is so exhausting on top of everything else that goes into my career. You know, it's not just about, oh, what time can I come into the hall to rehearse? It's also like, what's this interaction going to be with this presenter or with the backstage crew? Like, are they going to, you know, argue with me about my tech setup because they see like a black female doing this and they assume I have no idea what I'm doing. You know, there's just this constant thought process going on. And the reason why I sort of am rejecting this super woman complex thing is because I don't want to have to have that mental gymnastics. I want to just show up and be myself and you know people can take it or leave it but I'm just gonna keep on keeping on relatedly how do you and not necessarily related to the panel but it but it is um how do you generally speaking how do you kind of take care of yourself and your own mental health just kind of so that you're able to be the artist and the composer and the hard worker that you obviously are. It's interesting. I think for a lot of performing artists, there's this misconception surrounding perfectionism. You know, you'll see like a video on YouTube or a clip on Instagram and you think, oh, this is what this artist sounds like all the time. And that's just not true. And so I allow myself to make mistakes. I allow myself to not have awesome days because if I don't, then I'm in this constant battle with myself and I'm not allowing myself to really cope with what's happening. I think there is sort of performing as a mixed bag. There's so much good, but there's also a lot of negativity And rather than just focusing on the good and and pretending that the negative doesn't exist, I like to address the negative and give myself time to mourn the fact that this comes with the job, right? And so for me, a lot of the self-care that I do is in the little things like programming. And I don't always go all out with a program you know when I'm on tour sometimes I don't want to deal with getting all the percussion gear and the logistics and this and that sometimes I want to just show up to a gig and improvise for like 20 minutes of my program if I am not feeling like I want to be focused on like 13 drums or something so um yeah for me it's allowing myself to not be perfect And also just prioritizing the experience that I'm giving to audiences. What I love about performing so much is that it is a social experience. You know, people are choosing to take time out of their evening to come and see me perform. And I don't take that lightly. As much as I'm putting in work to perform, you know, the audience is also taking time out of their day to come and, you know, show their support. And so I just want to make sure that everybody's having a good time. So I try not to take myself too seriously. Um, I think oftentimes, especially with classical music, 
it's viewed as this very serious thing where you show up, you're dressed nicely, you're, you know, showing your top manners. And I don't want it to be that. I just want it to be a more informal experience where I'm not putting too much pressure on myself to be a certain way. And I'm also not putting pressure on my audience because that way we're, you know, getting energy from each other. It should be a sort of symbiotic experience where we're taking and giving from each other. And so for me, if I don't have this pressure of you have to be perfect, then it really helps me mentally. Um, and honestly, when I'm in a good place mentally, it also helps me relax physically when I'm often playing like a one hour program, you know, that can be exhausting if you're tense and if, you know, you're not in a great state. So I think getting into state for me, getting into that performance state is about how do I make this feel like I'm just going out there and having a conversation with friends, right? Like I don't want it to feel like a formal event. I just want it to be natural. And I think what's interesting about percussion is oftentimes audiences will say, this is the very first time I've seen like a percussion recital. This was so interesting. And I think, okay, if this is the first time that this audience is seeing a percussion concert, why do I have to put so much pressure on myself to be perfect when, you know, I could completely mess up and they would have no idea anyway. And so for me, I just, I don't take myself too seriously. I find a lot of humor in the fact that people actually want to like come and hear me play a solo program because it's literally just like me, like a five, three, like brown girl, like playing percussion. And I think that's kind of funny, especially when like, People in the audience have never seen a percussion performance before. And so I'm like, yes, I take pride in what I do. I'm very thankful that people want to support what I do. But at the same time, it's like just not a serious thing. You know, I don't have anybody dying on my table. Like I am not a surgeon. Like I'm just playing music and there shouldn't be that much pressure on it. Right. <laughs> You just you just haven't found the work that's gonna make people do that yet. So that's maybe that's what you're writing right now for for Marimba and Violet. Yeah, you know? maybe they they have a good time and it's and you're playing thirteen drums and Merlin and Velocities and it's just like the you know the fun pieces obviously. Mm -hmm. No, no, just kidding. I would never put Velocities under the fun pieces. <laughs> <laughs> But also, it's funny you you mention all this, and and what's I it's what's I love though is that you have some of the most dramatic picture like of your your promo <laughs> photos are all like the most like the and they're love I love them so much and it's just but it's funny when you're like they look at you and you've got this like dramatic pose and, you're, and they may it's expect so this Brent is what I'm saying they may expect like like you know the, the gestures. Yeah, it's actually interesting. Um, I also love my headshots. I think that awesome. they're fun. That's um, great. I love that, you know, I sort of have these 
headshots where I'm like cheesing and there's like a white backdrop and it's so fun and goofy. And then there's this totally polarizing like Wednesday Adams vibe. <laughs> and I think it's so funny because I'm like, that actually represents me. Like some days I'm going to be in a great mood. And then some days I'm just going to like have my resting face on and be like, this is what you get. So I think really, I just really enjoy artists that have duality. I think often as a musician, when I'm listening to some of my favorite artists and they do something different, I often have to catch myself when I get judgmental. And I'm like, what is this? This is something different. I wasn't expecting this. And then I'm like, oh, but being different is good because it shows that you're experimenting that you are not placing yourself in a box. I think there are artists that are great at a specific thing and that's awesome. But then there are artists that are great at something, but they'll still explore something else. And for me, it's really interesting to see those different sides. And I think it's very human because, you know, we're not all going to be like the same way all the time. It's a little dramatic, but that is kind of what's represented through my photos is like, yeah, I can be this goofy, girly, but I can also, you know, be super serious and both can exist at the same time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, it's like when you go to if you go to see Beyonce and you're sitting there like, well, where's the Destiny's Child stuff? <laughs> yeah, right? like, you know that, you know, she was like. 18 when she made all that music right like i think she's done some uh, some more recent stuff you might you might appreciate <laughs> right <laughs> so yeah constantly constantly changing yeah complex human nature things <laughs> yeah well let's back up brit so where did you grow up i grew up in gainesville florida which is a university town, uh, home of the University of Florida. So it's a super boring town. There's not much to it other than the university. And so I basically wanted to get out of there as soon as possible. And that's why I went to school in Canada for my undergrad. I was like, there are seasons? Like, I want to experience that. And honestly, it could have been the worst school ever. I could have, you know, completely disliked my teachers. But the first time I saw snow, I was like, I'm sold. <laughs> and I was like, this is the school that I have to go to. It literally looked like, you know, um, in the Harry Potter movies when there's like Hogsmeade. And it's this winter wonderland vibe. That's totally what I got from Toronto. And I was like, I have to be here. And I mean, luckily, I absolutely adored my teachers and everything. For me, growing up in Gainesville was, it felt very isolating in a way, growing up in a suburb and, you know, being one of the only sort of Black pianists growing up in this competitive piano thing that I was doing as a kid in Gainesville. And then through my marching band experience in high school, middle school, and you know, high school band, I was often like the only black kid there. And so 
leaving, going to Toronto in a town that's quite diverse and full of a lot of different cultures, I was just sort of this bright-eyed, like, 17-year-old. I was so excited. And I think there, that's what I learned a lot about myself. I think growing up in Florida, I was a specific way um, because, you know, I'm just there all the time. I had never even left the country before going to Toronto. And so to see what was out there in the world and to be able to discover myself through trying new things, experiencing life at a different lens, um, it helped me develop independence. It helped me um, just find my voice as a musician. And in a way, I think it was good that I grew up in, you know, this small university town because then I was more motivated to try new things once I left. And um, I didn't really limit myself once I got to college in terms of experiencing life. Uh, you know, I tried a bit of everything, did a lot of things and just let myself experience and grow and figure out who I am. I think growing up in a small town, surrounded by family, uh, you're often in a state where, you know, you want to please your family or you want to be a certain way because everybody knows everybody. But once you can get out there and really express yourself, uh, that was a game changer for me. Uh, just, you just being like, snow, yes! And like, how many people are like, please get me away from snow? <laughs> but I get it. You were in Florida, you know. That, that makes complete sense. D were you... Um, around any family members who were in the arts at all? My parents, they're, they're not musically inclined, but growing up, um, I played piano and so did my four other sisters. So there was always music happening at home. Um, Wait, where are you in the lineup of sisters? I am Four or five. Okay. Um, I was the youngest for five years, and then I was dethroned and very sad about it. <laughs> so now my little sister is like my best friend. Sure. Wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> but at the time, it was it was like, who is it this interloper? Devastating. <laughs> so everyone was playing. Was was everyone was was doing piano as their primary instrument? Yes, I think because I grew up in a household where me and my siblings, we were all doing piano, I just wanted to rebel. And so I was like, drum set, that's what I want to do. And my parents were like, um, no. And so I had to just consistently ask them for like a month. I had to drive them to insanity. And yeah. then they simply said, okay, but we're not going to get you a drum set. And then, you know, I'm taking lessons. Um, my drum teacher uh, is a guy named Rick Cameron. Like two weeks into lessons, he was like, um, you need to get her a drum set. <laughs> and then, you know, lo and behold, I'm just making sounds in my parents' house, in the living room at that. Wow. Yeah. So it was absolute chaos. A lot of music happening all the time. My little sister 
Uh, she's a singer, so she would be like belting Broadway tunes while I'm playing drum set while one of my sisters is like practicing Beethoven. And it's just like hilarious. <laughs> That's quite a, a, a just a matching of styles, I'm going to guess, because I'm sure none of you were playing anything in the same like century, maybe. Never. <laughs> <laughs> Did you keep playing piano or were you, when you did, when you switched the drum set, were you like, I'm now I'm doing that? I actually kept up piano up until college. Mm -hmm. I was auditioning at schools for piano and percussion. And then I had to choose, had to choose which path I would take. And of course I chose percussion because duh. Um, But yeah, piano growing up for me, it was my first introduction to music. And it was actually the first time that I realized that I wanted to do music as a career was because of piano. I wanted to be a concert pianist. Those dreams sort of died out once. Well, I had a very specific experience where I knew I wanted to play percussion. I sort of grew up in this marching band kind of setting with mallets, I played in the front ensemble. And so the only mallet percussion that I was really exposed to in learning, studying, was marching style playing. And then one day at the University of Florida in Gainesville, they had a guest percussionist come to give a marimba recital. And this was Andy Harnberger. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I went to that recital and it changed my life. I was like, the marimba can sound like that? Like, what is happening? Why don't I sound like that when I play? And then I was like, no, this is what I want to do. And so I was like, piano, whatever. I I don't need it. I want to do that. Like, I just wanted to sound like Andy. And so pretty much that all went into my undergrad. I was trying to figure out how to like make cool sounds on marimba and to sort of build those chops Mm -hmm. because that recital just blew my mind and I remember when I first got to Toronto studying with Bev Johnston she would always tell me like your wrists are locked you need to relax because I was so used to this marching style playing and I had a lot of unlearning to do and I remember Bev she was like you need to play like Conrado Moya. And I was like, who's that? And so I became obsessed with like watching Conrado Moya. And I was like, I want my wrist to be like that. And then I fell into this sort of YouTube uh, black hole where I was listening to a lot of performers and I was watching them and I was realizing, oh, that is nothing like what, how I'm approaching this. And so through studying with Bev, hearing the way that she sounds, listening to the way that my peers sound, like that is how I fell in love with concert style percussion. And that's that Andy Harnsberger concert really, it really did something for me. I was like, this is my thing. This is what I want to do. Yeah, that's awesome. He had come to UNC Greensboro when I was a doctoral student and played Night Rhapsody 
and Merlin, and then like still another like 40 minutes of really hard music. I was just like, I don't know what you're doing, but like this is unbelievable. Well, how far what where when you finish when you stopped doing piano, what were you playing like concerti at this point? Yeah, I was playing concerti. I was very competitive, like always doing, you know, Florida piano competitions. I got quite advanced and I auditioned for schools and I had success. And then I had to say, you know, this isn't, this isn't where I see myself long-term. Yeah. And now I still play occasionally. Um, It's more of a relaxing hobby for me, which is nice in contrast to it always being stressful growing up competition culture, which is a whole other conversation. Any particular concerti you were playing towards the end? Um, I think the last concerto I learned was um, Mendelssohn. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I played that for my... I had, I was very dramatic as a child. I had a... At the time? What, this has changed, Britt? Is that what you're saying? I had a senior recital. Yeah. Because I was graduating high school Mm -hmm. and moving to Canada. So I was like, I'm going to have a recital. And the first half, I played percussion, solo percussion. Nice. And I was in this, like, jumpsuit. And then the second half, I had clothing change and I changed yeah. it down and I played a Mendelssohn piano concerto. Nice. <laughs> Just like the most dramatic <laughs> thing ever. So it was fun. <laughs> I feel like you're so extra. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but you're like, but impressive, right? Like it was cool. They're like, yeah. <laughs> cool but like a bit over the top (laughs) (laughs) thank you right (laughs) i will i will i appreciate the compliment thank you exactly yeah (laughs) oh that that's great when you started playing drum set what what were your some of your styles or go-to things you like to play ah my drum set experience was really interesting because i had already known how to read music from piano And so when I started drum set, it was more of, here are the sounds you can make. Here are some recordings of some fun tunes. Let's improvise. And so my teacher and I, we would just like, the first thing I played on drum set was um, American Girl by Tom Petty. Oh, yeah. Uh, Gainesville's own. Yeah, exactly. And so um, that was always my go-to for for drum set as a kid, I mm. would uh, really just be playing. I went through this emo phase where I was like, my chemical romance is the best. And I would just like play obnoxiously along to that in the living room of my house, driving my parents crazy. Something that I loved about drum set was that I could explore multiple genres. Whereas with piano, I was just, you know, working on classical rap. So to have um, that contrast was really great for me. And I think it's the reason why still to this day, I love exploring different genres, exploring new music, just 
branching out of the classical scene on occasion. I love it because I feel like there's a lot that I can express in multiple different genres, you know, or different genres, but it's all the same concept where, you know, different forms, different structures of music, we're using it to communicate something, to express ourselves. And so, you know, any genre, like I, I can get with any genre really. Do you have a, do you have a set where you can just rock out? I'm in a really interesting process of getting my percussion studio set up now that I'm graduating from my master's Mm -hmm. and the drum set is next on the list. I got my marimba, my vibraphone is on the way. Um, And so it's really, really exciting getting this studio set up. Um, I'm looking at a Pearl drum set. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. As you're also, as you're doing all of these uh, activities in high school, were you involved in anything else, either sports or student government or church, anything that was kind of also filling out your time? I was pretty much just obsessed with music at this point. Outside of school, I was doing um, uh, youth orchestra, mm-hmm. and I also played with this uh, church, this church orchestra um, at a church that I totally didn't actually attend, but <laughs> I was like, hey, I have an orchestra, that's cool, I'll do it. And so for me, everything, every after-school activity was just music, and it sort of became my identity, and so growing up out of that, I had to, you know, discover my identity outside of music, which was really hard to do because my entire life was so consumed with music. Like my personality was music, being a musician. And then, you know, I had to to sort of find myself outside of music. And that is still a journey that is in progress. In the, in the high, your high school yearbook, it just says most likely the to music. And you're like, it's you, picture you, right? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) How do you know about Toronto's program before you go there? Yeah, so I really did my research. I was looking to move, first of all, to, you know, a town that, you know, had more diversity, where I could sort of be away from my friends and family and just have this time to really find myself. And when I first looked at Toronto, I was really excited because of Bev Johnston, um, who I was sort of obsessed with from just YouTube, listening to recordings. And then I discovered that Ayun Wong would be starting as associate professor uh, the year that I actually got there. And what really interested me with Ayun was that she specializes in um, percussion theater. And I was like, I have no idea what this is. This is a great opportunity for me to learn something new, which my personality type, I get bored so easily with the same thing. And I'm just constantly wanting to find something new to learn, uh, something new to experience. And so I was just up for the challenge. And 
it was definitely a challenge. The percussive art scene in Toronto is really great. I mean, there's a whole lineage of incredible percussionists and performers that have come out of the University of Toronto. And um, really with this, a lot of online research um, was definitely not word of mouth. Everybody thought that I was crazy when I wanted to go there. But I was like, there's, there's a method to my madness. And it's getting up out of Gainesville, Florida. <laughs> exactly. It's getting me out of this place. Yeah. So, okay, the, the snow, but not necessarily when you first get there because it's it's summer. But is there a moment when you first enter Toronto, when you first get to school, where it's like, I am definitely not in Gainesville, Florida anymore? My parents, they actually went with me uh, my first week there. And I remember the second that they were like, okay, we're going to the airport. Bye. I like completely freaked out and like had a mental breakdown. I'm like, oh, I'm actually here doing this alone now. And I think from that, it just got so positive, my experience there. Um for example, like I could walk around at night alone and feel safe. <laughs> so that was cool. Yeah. Um, everybody's so, you know, polite and nice. I was like, this is weird. <laughs> I've never experienced this before in Gainesville. Um, there are a lot of people that looked like me. That was cool. Um, the food was really good. I was like, Ah, we're not in Gainesville anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, this is becoming like the the Gainesville <laughs> can go to whatever <laughs> podcast. <laughs> no offense to my Gainesvilleians out there. All right, yes, but... no offense. I've trashed every moment. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is great. This is great. What's kind of the the setup of the of the program itself with the people that are teaching there? And was there kind of a does that school have like a plan of attack for an undergrad in terms of like expectations for trying to cover as much of the percussion instrument genre as possible? Yes. So um when I got there, you know, it's a very standard curriculum where you are in orchestra or a wind ensemble. Um, you know, you have percussion ensemble, private lessons. Um, they have what they call a world music program where they have taiko drumming. They have African singing, drumming, dancing. They have steel pan, um, Latin American percussion ensemble. So I did all of that, just trying to have as many experiences as I could playing different types of music. And that's something that IUN really encouraged for all of the undergraduate students is to just try out as many things as possible, go to as many performances as possible in Toronto, which there are a lot. And that way you can see what you like, see what you don't like, and really find your musical voice. And then um, something else that um, Ayun taught all the undergraduate students 
is, you know, branching outside of school. So my first experience with that was in 2019, I went to a soundscape music program uh, that is in Italy. And that was really exciting. My first time in Europe and my first time heavily exposed to new music. And I remember at first I was like, what is this? This is going against everything I've ever learned. I don't even know how to take this information. And I think really that experience taught me how to listen and how to interpret for myself what different musics you know, mean to me. And that experience, I think, got me excited about, you know, trying new things and not always being good at everything. Of course, playing percussion, you know, there's so much ground to cover and it's you can be proficient on many instruments. But, you know, I, growing up as a perfectionist, it was always hard for me to be like, for example, oh, I can't make the most beautiful sound on timpani ever. And so I think being in Toronto taught me that, oh, it's okay to not be good at everything, but you should still try and you should find, you know, what you enjoy and really put in most of your effort towards the thing that you want to do and then, you know, get by in other areas. Like orchestral percussion for me I've had such a love-hate relationship with it growing up. There was a point where I wanted to play in an orchestra, but then as I've grown, I just don't relate as much to the orchestral side of percussion playing. And I had to allow myself to accept that and to be like, it's okay. You don't have to play timpani in like the New York show. Like that can be somebody else's dream but that doesn't mean that you can't play percussion. Um, and so I think being at the University of Toronto, just surrounded by so many different types of music and so many students that were doing so many different things um, outside of the program was eye-opening because it was the first time that I realized, you know, we don't all have to fit a certain criteria or check off all the boxes, but you know, we can be individuals. I was like, I can be an individual? What? That's crazy. <laughs> I, I I love that the point about that can be somebody else's dream. Like that's a good, it's a good mantra to be like, not me, but good for you, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. What were the what are the facilities like at Toronto? Oh, they're like really bad. Can uh, I talk about that? I mean, the building literally has asbestos. Oh, it's one of those. Yeah, it's one of those. Was it like, you know, the whole stairwell thing? You have to like walk everything up and down, all that kind of stuff too? Yeah, it was interesting. Like the main percussion studio, yeah. it's um, on the basement level, like right behind the big performance hall mm -hmm. but not the main performance hall which is like on the third story and then the other percussion rooms are on the second story and so 
oh, this is situation. And then um, I think towards the end of my degree, we actually got more profession practice rooms because everybody was fighting over like three rooms and like mm. one five octave marimba. <laughs> and I'm sure it's expanded now, but it was rough. What was the kind of the ensemble, the percussion ensemble and the studio experience like? Like within just the right, your other colleagues there. It was really awesome. I feel like my undergraduate experience, um, I didn't realize how awesome it was until it was over. And I was like, that was a really great group of humans. Like some of the kindest people I've ever met in my life. Some of the most talented people I've ever met in my life. And really... Um, you know, there was a great diverse group. Um, you know, there were a lot of women, there were a lot of people of color. And also, uh, the percussion ensemble, we would do a lot of interesting repertoire by a lot of composers that, you know, aren't just white men. <laughs> we would do standard repertoire, but also new repertoire. And I remember... Um, a particular percussion ensemble concert where we played this piece called um, Imaginary Landscapes, which is just for like um, oh, radio. Is that, um, yeah. is that John Cage? Yeah. Yeah. And that was like one of the coolest experiences that I've ever had because I was like, I never thought I would be doing something like this. Mm -hmm. And we also played this piece called... Um, Rice Ball by Michael Pizarro, where we're just like dropping rice. And I thought, that's cool. Do I have to, do I have a special technique of dropping rice or is, is there, do that's I just drop technique. the rice? There, there's a special technique to dropping the rice. And so it was really funny because at the end we were like, wow, we wasted so much rice. Maybe we should just like make fried rice and like yeah. fried rice at the end of the concert <laughs> is this salvageable because i'm kind of hungry i gotta be honest anyone else hungry <laughs> but it was it was a really awesome experience i think after being a part of the university of toronto percussion ensemble i was like oh i don't want to just do the solo thing like i like making music for friends and so um, that was a really great discovery that came out of my experience there. Just finding ways to collaborate with um, other percussionists that I think are really talented and cool definitely came from studying at University of Toronto. Do you go right to Michigan after or do you, is there time off in between? So I go right to Michigan after. It's interesting, my experience at Michigan is sort of an unconventional experience because I'm almost never really physically in Ann Arbor because of work that I have performing outside of school. The past two years has been sort of condensed learning, you know, trying to fit a lot of technical concepts, sound concepts into, you know, a couple of months rather than spreading it out for a full semester. 
And it's been great um, here in Michigan because the facilities are so incredible that whatever you want to do, like it's possible. And that's something that I did not necessarily get to experience in my undergrad. So having these limited, unlimited possibilities is something that's really cool, but also kind of scary because then you have to be like, oh, I can be creative. I can think outside of the box. Being exposed to so many students here at Michigan that are doing so many different things has been really cool. Like just watching some of my colleagues play, I feel like I learned so much from that. And um, in terms of lessons here at Michigan, I'd say one of my greatest takeaways has probably been just redefining my concept of sound. One of my first lessons with Doug, we were just like, Britt, like, what sound are you trying to make? Did you make that sound? Do you know why you couldn't make that sound? And, you know, through thinking about sound, I'm like, oh, I'm able to develop my technique and use my technique to create different sounds rather than, you know, just thinking of building chops and playing the right notes. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I've been able to develop a lot um, as a musician and think less of, you know, being a percussionist, but like being a musician, like playing music. It's been great. It's coming to an end. I'm graduating in April, which is exciting, but also kind of terrifying because then comes the part where what do I do next? Am I going right into school? Am I taking a year off? Like, what am I doing? Am I trying to get a job in teaching or something? So there's a lot of options, but at the same time, you know, it's just a whole big world out there. And oftentimes being in school can feel sort of like a stability, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you have these facilities to practice in, you have familiar faces that you see, you're surrounded by other musicians. And then to not have that, I think, can feel quite intimidating. So um, who knows what the future will hold. <laughs> sure. Were you at Michigan when the when Doug and Ian got there? Like, were they already there when you started? I believe they've been there for about a year before I started. Um, so I was not around for that whole transition period. And really the reason why I went to Michigan was for Doug and Ian. Um, this was, of course, during all the interesting <laughs> Zoom auditions during COVID. And so I had already met Doug before at Chosenvale. So I already knew that we have a great, you know, face-to-face -face interaction. And so meeting Ian over Zoom and just being able to talk about my goals and, you know, what I envision out of an education at UMich was really great because once I got here, you know, we already had these plans and we didn't really have to waste any time before just getting into the music, which um, was really exciting, especially 
after COVID, when everybody's just eager to get back into the swing of things, um, that was really awesome. Are you planning to do to to go go for the final degree, or what? What do you do? You know yet? I guess you're still thinking about it, but it's really interesting because I never have taken a year off from school. It's been so consistent, and now I'm leaning more towards not going straight into another degree um, because I know that I can go back and get it whenever I want to, and I know that I have enough going on already in terms of my career so it's not an immediate concern for me um I know that I would like to eventually and I've been talking to a lot of different people trying to get opinions on what they've done what worked what didn't what they regret from either going straight into it or not going straight into it And I'm honestly, at this point, just listening to what my body is telling me, which is that you're kind of exhausted, like maybe take a year off. (laughs) Yeah, I don't recommend on my end. I, I am always I always tell people in terms of the doctorate, like I feel like the master's to me, it felt like an extension of the undergrad more than anything else. Mm -hmm. I felt like the doctorate was just, even I did my master's and doctorate at the same place. And I felt like the doctor was a completely different thing. And I felt like, don't do this unless you really want, mm-hmm. like, that, like if you, if, if that's what you like, definitely want, then like go, but don't, don't do it. If you, cause it's not the kind of thing you, you should be doing. Unless you're, like, you're like, eh. fully committed to it. Right. Yeah. No, yeah. don't. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also like the research part of it, mm-hmm. not into it. <laughs> <laughs> like, I have to do research. No thanks. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You 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 were you were getting paid to uh, at for your masters to to practice ten hours a day. Like that was your job. Exactly. Yeah, I told. I, I, we have at Mizzou. We have grad students, and I'm always uh, we have their their masters. They're not under my studio. Um, but I was, I always, whenever I see him, I'm like, your job is to practice mine. Like I, if, if you see me in the practice room, it's cause I'm trying not to, to deal with the teaching. I just need to like play some marimba for like 90 minutes and just like, get it, just like enjoy my mental health. You like, have to that's your job. That's so funny. <laughs> well, uh, Britt finish out with a segment called random ask questions. Yeah. <laughs> First question is an issue that in um and you could think of this as a percussion education or percussion performance that you do are dealing with so much of both that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts. Oh, I really hate when I'm like trying to play snare drum or something and then somebody's like, "Oh, but your fourth finger is slightly curled too much inward or oh you can push the stick up a centimeter or something like that i'm like um one my hand is nothing like yours and two like my brain can't conceptualize this like the very specific sort of instruction where it's not really describing how to fix a musical issue, but it's more just nitpicking drives me insane. <laughs> right. 
Let me guess. A white dude is doing this, saying this to you too, right? Oh, <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. Well, actually, is it to start with that? <laughs> Probably does. Yeah, I, I, I could, I could see that. That would be, that would be annoying. That's a good point, though. About just like, yeah, this is my hand. I'll, I'll take care of this. Thank you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> And I assume that you then like follow them into their practice room and then immediately critique everything that they're doing, right? Yeah, exactly. Give and take. I'm like, um, you can step back half a foot from the snare drum. (laughs) You know, it works easier if you rotate the hand (laughs) to play outer, to play the first thing than to actually like just go for it with your arm. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh that's great all right some other questions Britt has anyone ever nailed an impression of you and if so how'd they do it not to my knowledge <laughs> I'm sure it's happened mm-hmm. like behind my back <laughs> oh I but no I can't I can't think of that happening not, none of the other members of Excelsius like would just do impressions of you as they're just for fun I'll have to ask them oh okay <laughs> fair enough um what's the most impress well this could be this could get into what your your outfit change uh for your your oh. high school but uh, do you have a is there an impractical a really impractical item of clothing you own a gown okay like the most impractical thing ever for playing percussion and I will occasionally do it like for a concerto performance or something. I'll bring out the gown uh-huh. and I always regret it. I'm always like, why didn't I just wear like pants? Right. <laughs> like, why did I choose to wear heels when I could have just worn my Doc Martens? <laughs> Women's clothing is impractical. <laughs> right. Yes. Does your Does your gown have pockets? Probably not, right? You know, that is the one criteria that is a must for my gals. They must have pockets or else I'm like, I don't want it. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to find. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. This happened. Actually, my my wife has has taught a program um, in Italy for a number of years. She's a communication professor. We were somewhere and somebody walked by in in this dress that that had these like really awesome pockets and it, the dress was awesome and my wife like literally followed this like actually and i'm like you know that you want to ask her where she got this and she totally did and then she found and then the place was somewhere in new york city um oh. called paracelso that that my wife would when we because i'm sorry i should there's a the, the other part of this is i'm from new york um, I grew up on Long Island, so my fa- and I still have family out there. So whenever she and I visit my folks, we tend to spend some time in the city. And there was a number of years where we would go to this this like really in the middle of nowhere. It was a clothing person, but it was because I was like, you have to ask this woman where she got. I know it's driving you nuts. And then a woman was like, "Oh, it's this wonderful place!" And yeah, and and my wife bought like four four dresses that she still wears on her. Oh it's serious, like it's lacking yeah. in the women's clothing industry. Like we we need more pockets. 
yeah. a small campaign for 2023. Yes, more pockets. More pockets. You're not, you don't have to have a pocketbook all the time. Like, right? Isn't that, I mean, that's a part of it, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Since we talked about the vegan cuisine, what's your biggest kitchen mess up? That's a hard one. I actually, well, before I went vegan, I really enjoyed baking a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I once had an extreme cake fail where I was like trying to make a cake for some holiday and it just like completely failed. But I like did the measurements incorrectly. You know, sometimes when you're baking and you're like, here's a recipe, I'm going to glance at it, but not actually follow it. Oh. That was one of the times where I just glanced at it and I was like, oh, got the measurements wrong and it's just completely unstable. It was a mess. Did, did, did the cake like just like fall topple or just didn't bake in all the way? What, what happened? It like would not bake. Oh. <laughs> I had to have put it in for at least two hours. And then <laughs> I was like, um, okay, at some point I have to call this. Right. <laughs> you know, I don't think we can go for a third hour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but you were thinking, you're like, no, I'm not giving this up. You know, I didn't want to give up on it too soon. I was right, like, yeah. Everybody deserves a second chance, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, you, you know, when you're a high achiever like yourself, you're like, I'm not give this is this can't happen. Like we we're going to we're going to make this work. Right. Right. It's the way it goes. It's good. I'm glad you finally were like, maybe I should. First of all, you probably were starving at the end of that, I would imagine. Always. I mean, you know, those holidays where it's like, OK, we're going to have a big family dinner. So then mm-hmm. all day you're just preparing the food and then you're not really eating anything and so by then I was like okay like we're just scrapping this thing and like I need to I need to eat. All right what's a great movie and what's a terrible movie? Well this is kind of a weird answer. I like Interstellar. I think that movie is yeah, so yeah. Cool. yeah it's like the most slow paced film ever but I think that's why I like it. I also just like really like Matthew McConaughey and I really like the Hans Zimmer soundtrack is awesome I love a good old fashioned Hans Zimmer soundtrack yeah that movie I feel like it's the only movie that I can watch more than once I'm the kind of person that will not rewatch a movie I think it like takes away from the magic of it once I already know how it's going to end but sure. that's one movie where I'm like, I can just turn this on and be content. A not great movie. I don't like any superhero movie. <laughs> I hate them all. Mm. I just think that they're so cliche and they're like all kind of the same. And this is this is controversial, but I just don't like a superhero movie. I don't it's interesting because I've I think about that too with with those movies where I have if I don't see him in the theater, like if I, like I need to, I, if I'm gonna like want that kind of like massive experience, that I I can't watch it like on my computer, right? I, I need to like be completely and or I'm just not. It just yeah, but you're just like I'm just gonna avoid it all. It sounds like 
Oh, the worst. I can't. I can't sit through a superhero film. And then everybody's like, oh, the megaverse. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, what is this? Like, I am just so not into that. I. Well, on a related note, and I'm curious if you do have this, since you're a one, one time only must impress Brit once you have one chance to, <laughs> to, to bring Brit in, it sounds like. Um, do you have a favorite in theater movie experience? I think the last time that I went to see a movie in a theater wasn't a real movie. It was like a DCI <laughs> film thing. Oh, uh-huh. And I was like, this is kind of awesome. I like, kind of love the surround sound. It was kind of epic. That was cool. I forgot about that. Wow. Memories. <laughs> Very nice. All right. Do you have a favorite book? I'm a super nerd for the Harry Potter books. I will reread those all the time. Mm-hmm. It's such a basic answer, but I love them. Like, Sorry. I can just be anywhere, pull up a Harry Potter book and just be transported and be so happy. Like I can be sitting in like Chicago airport, which is my least favorite airport for like eight hours. And if I have a Harry Potter book, time will fly by. Yeah. Uh, that that's good. Do you do you have a favorite of the of the seven? Wait, well, it depends on the book or the film. My favorite oh. film is. Um, well, I was talking about the book specifically, but you can. Oh uh, yeah, the book specifically. I think the Half Blood Prince is really good. Ooh. There's a lot of inks, which I like. <laughs> that's a good angsty storyline. <laughs> that's interesting. I. I wonder if that's the first because I've had a number of people I've talked to who who when I ask that it's almost always Goblet of Fire or um, the one after was Order of the Phoenix is that the fifth one? Yeah, Goblet of Fire is my film. Oh, okay. My favorite book is Half Blood Prince. Okay. Did you ever see the the meme that that had the titles of the Harry Potter books in as from Hermione's perspective? I don't think I've seen this. Have you seen this? Is I'll. I'll have to find it. I'll I'll tell I I gotta send it to you because it's one of my favorites. Because it's like uh Hermione Granger and the time I was a time lord. <laughs> or uh it's like Hermione Granger and the the 45th time I had to get Harry Potter out of some situation or something. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so it's like just a it's it's perfect. They're they're all like they're perfectly like I mean, we all know that Hermione is actually the hero exactly of, of the story. <laughs> So you've been slamming uh, Gainesville again is the Britain Renee Collins slamming Gainesville podcast. Um, were you, a, 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 did you have family that were connected to the university? Um, I did not. My mother, she went to school um, at university of Florida. Never, never any family that worked for the university, but I actually studied with uh, the piano professor at the university of Florida growing up. Mm. Um, because I was an overachiever when it came to, I don't know, study with the piano professor, even though I'm like 14. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, the, the, where I was originally going for it is, do you have a sports fandom? I love tennis. It's my favorite, particularly men's tennis. Okay. Um, Am a diehard Rafa Nadal. Oh no, no! 
Sorry oh, to all my Djokovic fans, but um, I'm a Rafa Nadal girl. <laughs> oh wow, you're talking to a, a, a Fed head, so. Oh, it's okay. They're but friends, so I guess we can be Nadal. friends. Yeah. Yeah. Friendly rivalry. Yeah. Why Rafa? I just I love his game and also his mentality. I feel like. The way that he approaches the sport, like out of passion, out of just love for the game, I think it's super cool. And I don't know, I feel like I've watched so many times where he just bounces back after being down, like mm-hmm. a set. And I'm always like, wow, I love Rafa. He's just so cool. I don't know, I'm just such a fan girl of Rafa. <laughs> I, I always say, like, I want to be as good at something, maybe, as he is at on the clay. Like, it's like, if I could do that just once. like Yeah. I feel the exact same way. <laughs> but I, I, I will say, I think the, the one that I was most impressed with was when he won the, um, when he won the Aussie Open most recently. Oh, yeah. But it came, when he, because he hadn't won it in, like, over a decade and he yeah. frequently got hurt at that tournament too. Mm-hmm. And then he comes back from two sets down to, to get the 21st. That mentality, like right. incredible. Really admire that. From yeah. Him. And you're right about the, the bounce back thing. He, he was always more than anyone else when he would lose a set, like he would come out the next set and be like, we're, we're I'm done. Like we're not yeah. we're not messing around anymore. I'm gonna I'm gonna smoke you, right? <laughs> Business time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's really good. I got to I, I now that you've you've talked about Rafa, I have to I I've mentioned this before, but um I got to see him practice at Wimbledon like a decade Ooh, ago. I'm and it so was, jealous. And I and it was it was wild because it was it was um Federer was pre- they were both so there was like the practice courts which were like somewhere on on another part of Wimbledon but then they Federer and Nadal each practiced on one of the the side courts near the the main the larger arena courts and um and it was wild to see the difference between the two of them where Federer you can imagine is all about is like relaxed <laughs> like just like doing the most ridiculous things like it's no big deal and Rafa is just hitting bombs. And this is practice, Britt. And he's just like crushing the ball. And you're just oh like, oh, it's just like, oh my gosh, he's he's gonna like hurt himself now. I mean, it was, it was wild. That's awesome. <laughs> and he, I mean, you know this too from watching him, and he is jet like in person, like just jacked. <laughs> oh yeah. I think that's my number one goal is to see Rafa play before he retires. Yeah. Like that, that would be a dream. Yeah. You get, you, you have to, you have to like make that a priority now. Cause I, I think know. he's nearing the end. I have, to, I have to change my priority list. I'll be like, I know exactly. I mean, then, you know, yeah, then DMA maybe. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, that, that's, that's super cool. You've, you were mentioning that you have gotten to do a bunch of traveling through through performing and other stuff, but where's somewhere you have not 
traveled to you still want to get to? Ooh, okay. Well, there's like two places. First, Australia. I really want to go. Um, I just think because it's so far away, it's like hard for me to wrap my head around the fact that it actually exists. Sure. (laughs) For that reason alone, I would love to go someday. And then I would also love to go to Iceland. It looks so beautiful. I would love to go during a time where I can see the Northern Lights, which I've never seen before. Um, Actually, a bird as well. I would love to go to Alaska and just like hike. Mm. You know, got to make at least one of those trips happen before 2024. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Are are you a, are you a hiker? I'm not. I would love to like do it seriously. Like the only hiking experiences that I've had have been in like Quebec, where I'm like just going up a mountain that some people would say is not a real mountain you know so i gotta i gotta go extreme you know go big or go home fair enough do you have a go-to karaoke song i feel like dancing queen (laughs) okay yeah yeah i think i think dancing queen it's a good choice yeah, and I you know, reason for it, just yeah, yeah, you know, and you know what, everyone else is going to know it too, which is nice. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's a good touch. Going back, so Gainesville, I'm, I am curious though. This might be a weird question to ask with your, with how your diet has progressed, but is there a place when you do go visit family down there that you have to eat at, like that you actually like really? This is this this is my food. Yeah, so there's this Chinese food restaurant mm-hmm. um, next to this Publix in Gainesville. That's the most Florida thing I've ever seen. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but there's this there's this Chinese food restaurant um, that is just really good. And honestly, I can't eat Chinese food from anywhere else without being like it's not the same. And so whenever I go home, my parents just know at this point. That like we're having chance for dinner. <laughs> nice. What's the what's your go-to meal there? Lo mein. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's a big order. You can eat. I like <laughs> to get the lo mein. I like to get those veggies and brown sauce. Mm-hmm. And then I like to get like a, a spicy sort of noodle and I'll eat it all. That's I used awesome. to I used to love the like cheese wontons but i can't eat them anymore <laughs> sure one of the places near us has a um it's called homestyle bean curd it's their their they make their it's their tofu one of their tofu dishes it's one of those where my wife is she's like i don't know how they get it so crispy but we always like just struggle to kind of match that but it's one of those yeah. where, like just go with the pros on this you know right like yeah. it's just not the same anywhere else right yeah I mean, for you it's like like not even other chinese restaurants you're just like no yeah, no i just can't <laughs> <laughs> like if i'm eating chinese food it's because i'm in janesville florida next to the Publix, having chance <laughs> oh Publix, this is good <laughs> all right uh last couple strangest funniest or most bizarre performance moment that involves you Oh, I have a kind of funny performance moment. Okay. Um, 
We, my duo partner and I, we have um, this cover of um, arrangement actually of Misty. And one of our last shows, we were doing this cover and some man was just singing along at the top of his lungs. And I was like, that's beautiful, but also like very unexpected. Yeah. And I was like, okay, this is happening right now. And then it just happened. And it, it was a trio. <laughs> <laughs> was he in key? He was. Oh, good. All yeah. right. But it was just so unexpected. That I was like, what is happening? <laughs> and you're like, your arms are still like moving. Like, please get near the right notes as I'm trying to process. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's kind of funny. Nice. Did you, did you thank did you say we would like to thank our our third our third member of our duo? Yeah, we are like we are so excited for the debut of Vision Trio. <laughs> thank you, sir. <laughs> nice. Well done. All right, uh Britt, last question. One piece of art. Music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything that's impacted you the most recently? It's a tricky one. Well, one time in Toronto, mm -hmm. I went to this percussion concert um, from Yvonne. I can't remember his last name. That's the problem. Anyway, it was such a good concert. And he played like Tamas Hall, the like, Maracas pieces. And it kind of blew my mind. And I think from there I was like, oh, like percussion plus electronics is super unique. And I feel like from that experience it impacted me because I was like, I want to do some percussion plus, you know, multimedia works. And now I feel like I'm doing that all the time. So that was back in like 2020. So I still think about it often with a great performance. Britt, we're done. <clears throat> you know, it's, it's it's like small interactions, but you at things like PASIC, but but even when when we met and you were you knew of the show, I was like, I enjoy hearing that, you know, because it's but so I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm a super fan of the show. Like <laughs> It's sort of become my um, travel podcast. Like whenever I'm traveling, it just helps time go by so quickly because I just get so invested in the conversations. So I'm like, oh, like my three hour layover is over already. Cool. <laughs> well, it's good because that is about the average length, sadly. But um, <laughs> no, I appreciate it. I, I appreciate hearing that. Um, thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. Such a pleasure chatting with Britain Renee Collins here. Really appreciate her fandom of the show, and I wish her the best of luck in finishing out the master's degree and all of the things that come her way through the chamber and solo work in the future. Thanks again, Brit. This week's rave is the combination of two works that tell the story of one of the, if not the, greatest high school basketball teams of all time. The 2016 nonfiction book, the Boys of Dunbar, written by Alejandro Denois, 
and the 2017 ESPN documentary film based on the book, Baltimore Boys, produced by Alejandro Dunois and directed by Sheldon Candice and Marquise Daisy. Danois' book focuses on the boys' basketball team during the years 1981 to 1983 from Dunbar High School in Baltimore, Maryland, coached by Bob Wade and featuring future NBA basketball players Tyrone Muggsy Bogues, Reggie Williams, Reggie Lewis, and David Wingate, along with a number of other players who would end up playing college basketball after their high school years. Both the book and movie take a longer lens into the city of Baltimore, how it was this major mecca for business and industry for many decades and was a place that a lot of African Americans migrated to from the South to seek a better life after the end of Reconstruction. During the 1960s and 70s, as with many other northern cities, many internal and external factors contributed to a major economic downturn, and Baltimore, to this day, is still recovering from that. Out of that setting appeared this high school, named after poet from the Harlem Renaissance Paul Lawrence Dunbar, and coincidentally, the team was nicknamed the Poets. And through the work of former NFL player and now educator Bob Wade, the basketball program grew in stature. And over the course of those two seasons of 1981-82 and 1982-83, the boys' basketball team went undefeated and, for the most part, crushed all opponents in this time, on any court and at any level those opponents were at. I was drawn to this story, for the most part, through the work of five foot three Muggsy Bogues, a player well-known to me in both the NBA and for his four years guiding my alma mater, Wake Forest University, to great heights in the mid-1980s. He's still the shortest player in NBA history and made a career there for over a dozen seasons. He was the spark that got this team to that final level. Both David Wingate and Reggie Williams would star at Georgetown University during their time and would lead the team to the 1984 National Championship along with Patrick Ewing, and both went on to long and productive NBA careers afterwards. Reggie Lewis would star at Northeastern University in Boston and then with the Boston Celtics and was hitting a major peak in his stardom before his career and life tragically ended due to complications from genetic heart issues that ended with him collapsing on a practice court in the summer of 1993. Through it all, the backstories, the descriptions of games, the characters involved, the pep talks, the close calls, all of it are richly detailed in both the book and the movie. It's a great story of what happens when folks are drawn together towards a common goal, rise against the odds, and come out better for it at the end. Check out both Baltimore Boys through ESPN and The Boys of Dunbar wherever you get your books and enjoy. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at PeteSperkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.